0: So instead of one of the one of the uh, points that I'm going to make today is that it's a historical argument that demonstrates, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it because I want to make sure we hit some of the primary points and have some time for Q and A. But one of the arguments that I'm going to make today is that the um, beliefs and positions held by the evangelical church. Uh, at least since the mid-1850s, have been largely constrained by the contexts of culture and that the church has, in large degree, followed the culture in its conclusions and in its framing. Okay, so I'm going to be making that point. And we want to redeem, okay? We want to redeem culture we want to image the creation that god has intended as the as the kingdom of god on earth we don't want to mimic it evangelicals in america followed the general movement toward an increasing individualism and preoccupation with personal over corporate concerns. And so this is a, this is a quote from uh, Michelle Lee Barnwell, who wrote the book Neither Complementarian Nor Egalitarian. It's one of the two that I'm kind of heavily relying upon this morning. Um, both very new books. This rising individualism, along with changing conceptions of the boundaries and value of the family, helped to shift evangelicalism from being driven by a core concern for the good of the larger society to the quest for personal fulfillment, as seen in the immediate family, and then the acquisition of individual rights. In this way, social trends influence the overall movement of conceptions of gender toward an increasingly individualistic concern, even as evangelicals seem to vacillate between more complementarian and egalitarian manifestations. So let me just explain kind of what she's saying. Um, The culture has become more individualistic. We have become more individualistic. and, And the arguments of gender that have been going on for a long time since the 1850s and earlier than that, there's always been discussions about gender in human society since the first men and women. Um, What she's arguing, what her book shows, is that we've got to start thinking of these things outside of the larger frameworks that the culture and history has created. We need to start thinking of these things from the framework of the kingdom of God and, and a biblical understanding of these ideas uh, rather than trying to draw passages and arguments out of um, Scripture within a context that the, that the larger culture is setting. And so what I want to do here just very quickly is do a quick overview of some of that history. And so there's, there's really uh, three eras that uh, she spends three chapters on, and I'm just kind of summarizing these chapters uh, really quickly. Um, the first era is the mid-19th century, so mid-1800s, to the turn of the 20th century, so the early 1900s. And so um, this era had the conviction that that women definitely possessed uh, the domestic skills and callings that men didn't, but the qualities of, of women Uh, in these, what they would call domestic capabilities and skills, were not something to restrict them to the home for. They saw that those qualities were needed for the regeneration and reform of society. And so women pressed for more societal influence and power. And this would be like the first wave of feminism in the United States. So women pressed for more societal influence and power, but not for their own individual rights, but for the ability to have more influence in society at large. And so it was in this era era where you saw a lot of uh, reform movements emerging that were oftentimes led by women, as well as um, efforts into missions that were... Um, largely, in a very significant way, um, led and um, facilitated by by women. Okay, so there was a a movement towards a greater recognition uh, for women's contributions, uh, but there wasn't a shunning of the domestic skills and qualities, it was a, a vision that saw those things as needed for the larger regeneration of a corrupt society. So the second era I've got a number of things that I'm moving up here. Second era uh, was post-World War II. So you have uh, World War I, World War II, um, a, a, an era and a culture significantly affected by war, and you have a lot of soldiers returning um, back to the workplace and a huge migration of women out of the workplace because you had so many of the young men Participating in the war, that the that the work of of the war machine uh, and just keeping the country going was largely uh, manned. Oh, excuse me, <laughs> facilitated by women, and so after World War II, you had a huge change take place where there was a, an increased emphasis on the need for peace and security, and the peace and security that our culture sought at that time was the home, and so there was a huge push to see. Um, women taking care of the home and providing a place of peace for their husbands and for their, for their children. And so the evangelicals followed suit and increasingly defined a woman's calling, uh, specifically restricted to the sphere of being a wife and a mother and taking care of home life. Okay? The third era, 1970s, so eventually... Um, Eventually, what women began to experience was what Betty Friedan called the feminine mystique, which was this this sense that um, there was more to being a woman than simply taking care of a husband and children. Now, it wasn't being argued that taking care of a husband and children was a bad thing. It was just, it's quite possible that there might be more than that. Okay, So that's called the feminine mystique. And so that was taking place in our culture at large. And that same um, impetus was affecting the the church uh, as well. And so this is all within the context of the civil rights era, where there's a press for more uh, personal and individual rights. This time, it's not for the good of the society, it is for personal rights and fulfillment. And so the evangelical arguments, uh, again, were couched in these contexts. So those are kind of the three areas. Really brief. I would encourage you to pick up both of the books. The first book is called A Woman's Place uh, by uh, Caitlin Beattie. Okay. Uh, the second book is called Beyond Egal- Beyond, Beyond Complementarianism and Egalitarianism um, by Michelle Lee. Uh, Bronwell, I believe, was her name. So they're all on the city. So that is a quick historical overview of how the arguments within the church have been really set and structured by the cultural and historical movements of America since the 1850s, okay? And, um, and well, I'm not going to elaborate anymore. I've got to stick right here to the script because we will not have time, and I want to make sure we do Q&A. So what I want to do is use Titus, and I can't, we can't be strictly restricted to Titus because Titus isn't intended to teach on the full scope of this subject. Um, so I'm going to pull in a little bit of Proverbs and some other passages as well, as you'll see as we go through. Um, but I want to I provide uh, what I'm calling uh, toward a framework, okay? I don't want to pretend that uh, what I'm going to present today is the final solution in regard to men's and women's roles and understandings of gender and sexuality. It, it's not. This is These things are always being uh, rethought, re-expressed, re-argued because our culture is constantly changing and we never come to um, a full understanding of, of the Scriptures. I mean, the Scriptures are written so that we can understand its intent, but we're always in this in this place of, of our experience of Scripture and of constantly needing to be um, interpreting our culture and interpreting the Scripture together. And so this is just kind of where where I'm at, all right? And where I think we should be at as a church um and I hope that it creates more discussions, so that I improve and that we improve as well. Okay, so we just, I'm just throwing, throwing out there what I call uh, a provisional framework. Okay, so the first point, men and women are called to work to busily engage in good works that benefit the family, the church family, and the world. This is in contrast to lives given to idleness, gossip, slander, laziness, gluttony, substance abuse, and debauchery. Lives that are unfit for any good work. And this seems to be the primary concern that Paul is addressing when he writes Titus. Now, for each one of these points, I've got a number of corollaries. I'm just gonna kind of work through those. I didn't I didn't want to put a hundred slides up here, okay? <laughs> Um, But there are a few points I want to make as we come off of each one of these. So corollary number one is that women are called to engage in work beyond the sphere of the family, okay? That is a biblical calling. This This text, Titus 2, cannot be used to limit the spheres that women are engaged in, okay? Number two, work in the church and in the world is not the exclusive sphere of men, which is Basically the same point as number one. Number two, husbands and wives are both called to manage the affairs of the household. Men are called managers of the household. Women are called managers of the household in Scripture. And so work within the household is not the unique sphere or calling of women. Now, I know that some of these things might seem like, duh, George. I mean, it's not like, we are not talking to a group of people from the 80s, all right? I know that some of these things are going to be like, no kidding, but I'm, I'm just wanting to be very clear because of the traditions that the church has been in, okay? So all, some of these might seem no kidding or duh, but I just am wanting to be very clear on what, on, on what I'm saying here. Uh, number two, in terms of the corollary, a well-managed household, all right, and the Scriptures affirm this wholeheartedly. A well-managed household is the product of unified and loving husbands and wives working together for the welfare of the family, the church, and the world. All right? Husbands and wives working together. And if a husband and wife is just working together for the success of their own individual family, it's not going to be a well-ordered or well-managed household. A family has a purpose. A family has a mission to the church and to the world. And they need to both take and and a family needs to take responsibility for that in order to keep itself from becoming selfish as a family. Number 3. Any of these points would make a great sermon in and of themselves, and so I'm really restraining myself from, like, preaching, but uh, I'm just wanting to really present uh, what I think we need to hear. Number three, motherhood is a unique gift and calling. The Bible and biology teaches that God calls mothers to the work of physically bearing and caring for young children. Because of this calling, the work of making a home as a place for the formation of young children, is a substantive part of her calling. So I got home yesterday from um, the classes that we teach on Saturday morning. The mail was there, and I get it out in Time magazine, and bam, right on the cover. It's a co- the cover story is called The Goddess Myth, How a Vision of Perfect Motherhood Hurts Moms. Okay, so It's just a whole article on all of the influences that are waging war <laughs> against our moms, from social media, from all kinds of media, from all different types of perspectives, all these different ways to uh, address your pregnancy, to address your, uh, the actual birth experience, to address the care of young children, and it struck me that this is not a concern for fathers. Fathers aren't losing sleep or experiencing a lot of emotional anxiety about whether or not they're being good dads. Now, I'm not saying that that's not a pressure that we have, but you don't, you don't see this level of burden across our culture on the preparation for the giving of birth and then the care of young children. You just don't have it. It is a motherhood thing. It's a motherhood thing. Now, there are simply some things a man cannot do that women can. He can't get pregnant. He can't carry a child. He can't give birth. He can't breastfeed. Women as mothers play a vital role in our call to be fruitful and multiply. And then here's a a great quote from Beattie's book. We have given women the vote. We have created laws ensuring that women can't be fired simply for being women. We have fought for women to be paid as much as men for the same work. But for all of our advancements in gender equality, we still haven't found a way to get a man to carry a child in his body, or to make sure he throws up, swells up, and passes out at 8.30 PM for nine months at the same rates as women. When it comes to our campaigns for equality, biology seems retrograde and out of touch. And in many cases, it still gets the final word. The physicality of these things limits mothers for a season and keeps her physically located near her children for the early years of their lives. However, these limitations do not prevent her, okay, these limitations do not prevent her from engagement in other spheres. And I want to point out a lot of the understanding—not understanding—a lot of the argument that takes place in terms of should women stay at home? Should women not stay at home? Is the is the home the women's sphere and work the, the man's sphere? You know, these are uh, these are concerns and issues and arguments. Uh, within generally a white middle class culture. All right? Um, the concept that women wouldn't be working in most of history and in most cultures uh, is a foreign one. All right? So when Paul is talking to women about keeping home and loving their children, he's not saying that they stop working. <laughs> Uh, it is This is work, all right? but oftentimes the work that, that women are going to be engaged in, even with small children, is going to be work that provides for the economic welfare of the family. These limitations do not prohibit her from engagement in other spheres or continuing to develop her skills or from engaging in work that earns income. While she is focused on the children and the home during the season, she is not restricted to the home. But it does make the choices of which there are increasingly many, okay? Another big difference in our time versus 200 years ago, there just weren't as many choices. You had a cultural script and the culture was set up uh, and men and women operated according to what the culture provided and there just weren't very many options. In our day, lots of options. Technology has brought lots of options, lots of choices to make. So, it, it, the, the biological realities of, of having children and caring for young children make the choices very challenging for women and men and their families. As, bio, as biology would have it, the prime season in which a woman would try to have kids is also the prime season for professionally kicking butt and taking names. Okay. So the one of the things I really like about this book, both books, is that they are going at the issues from, from every side and they don't leave neither of them leaves you with a, hey, here's a rule book. Uh, here's a list of ten do's and don'ts or ten simple steps. They're just throwing out the ideas and creating a lot of conversation, and they are addressing scripture and they are addressing cultural realities that we need to be discussing and talking about, and constantly trying to press for wisdom, wisdom in our in our lives. Caitlin quoted one woman when she was so. So Caitlin Beatty has been a part of Tim Keller's. Uh, faith and Work efforts over the past ten years. Uh, she was a managing editor at Christianity Today, and so she would actually be, from a tradition standpoint, she's actually would be on the conservative, reformed end of things theologically. She was. She uh, quotes this woman that she met at one of the Faith and Work conferences in New York City, and it was it was Caitlin Beatty and. Uh, Uh, What was her? I I think it's Catherine Alsdorf is the co-author with Tim Keller in his book. And so these two women uh, were presenting a lot of these ideas at this Faith and Work conference, but both these women are um, unmarried and without kids. And so a woman comes up and says, you know what? You really haven't addressed a whole lot of the issues that we face because you're not mothers. This woman said this, it is very difficult to choose a career when the result is spending tens of thousands of dollars on childcare a year and watching, or not watching, someone else parent and love your children more hours of the week than you do. It is also very difficult to choose family when a woman has worked hard in the 30 years prior to build a career and a reputation and gain experience that taking time off to raise kids would jeopardize at best. As you know, there's no job guarantee beyond the three months maternity leave, only partially paid in America, only very short paternity leave, if any, and yet America is filled to the brim with driven, intelligent, career-oriented women who, are also, who also are or are becoming mothers. And the last corollary on this in regards to the, the biological uniqueness and the, the special calling of mothers is that there is nothing prohibiting the husband-slash-father from helping in the tasks of making a home, as long as his contributions do not completely push the mother from God's calling of her to these things. And so the, the passage in Titus seems to be addressing uh, mothers that would just kind of like abandon their calling as a wife and as a mother. It is addressing wives and mothers that are giving themselves to laziness and substance abuse and bitterness. That, that's what that passage is addressing, okay? Uh, and there's nothing in Scripture, again, that prohibits men from engaging in the activities of keeping a home, right? Nothing. Number four, fatherhood is also a unique calling, the Bible and biology teaches that husbands and fathers are to sacrifice themselves to provide for and nourish their wives and children, to lay their lives down. Not to use their headship as a means of exerting power over their wives and their children, but as a as as having the sphere to lay their lives down for their care. And if you if you And the reason why I bring up biology into this point is that um, if a man and a woman, as husband and wife, from a biblical standpoint, um, choose to have sex, that decision, all right? I know in our culture it's primarily one of pleasure, all right? Both of the people, the man and the woman, in that decision have to recognize that Um, outside of the benefits of technology that we have that we can stop conception, which is a technological advancement. It's a scientific thing. Um, There's a recognition that we might produce a child from this. And that's an assumption that both the man and the woman need to recognize. Are we ready to care for a child. That has to be something that's going on in the minds of people, of us, um, when we want to engage sexually. That's, and, and the scriptures assume that these all of these dynamics are occurring at the same time. But we don't assume all of these things. But... If a, if, a, if a man is going to engage in sexual activity, he's got to be at the point where he's ready to take on the responsibilities of fatherhood. All right, otherwise, he has no business of engaging himself sexually because he is going to be producing children. So while the husband and father might be burying a greater part of the financial burden during the years of bearing and raising young children, or maybe not, this does not mean that he is exempt from the work of raising and parenting children and managing a household. Okay? In a lot of circumstances, the husband, father, for a season, is bearing the greater weight of the financial responsibility. That, does, that, that has been used by men to say that they don't have a role in the work that goes on in the home. And again, the scriptures do not teach that. The husband, father, has the responsibility to care for and nurture his wife, which means that he is going to need to concern himself with his wife's, his children's, mother's ongoing development in spheres other than the roles of wife and mother. A husband, a father, needs to be thinking about the calling of his wife outside of being a wife and a mother. A wife needs to think about the calling that her husband has outside of being a husband. And a father, we are called to love and to, to care for uh, and to respect and to help and strengthen one another as, as husbands and wives. And that means, how can I, how can I um, strengthen and encourage what, what my spouse is called to, outside of just the, the, the domestic responsibilities? Number five, parenting is a responsibility given to both fathers and mothers, in fact, while Proverbs teaches that both fathers and mothers are to be teachers and models for their children, the role of fathers is emphasized and most likely emphasized in Scripture, both old and new, because of a father's tendency. Okay, We see this in our culture. A father's tendency to neglect or abuse his role as parent. All right? Parenting is not the exclusive sphere of women even though they may provide a majority of the physical work of taking care of small children and in, create, and in creating an environment for their formation. Parenting is much more than the physical work of keeping kids alive. It is the work of fulfilling your responsibility to God to raise them to love God and to love others. That is a hard, hard task, and both husbands, wives, mothers, fathers are called to that role. And parenting is not something to hire out. If a man and a woman decide to get married, okay, this is this is step number one in giving up your individual freedoms, and this that the the book by um, um, Michelle Lee Bronwell really does a great job with this book because she just, she just takes a step back and says, okay, what if we think about marriage and what if we think about family from the context of the kingdom of God and not the context of individual rights and personal fulfillment that is so predominant in our culture today? Step number one, if you decide to get married, that's step number one in giving up your freedom because now you're called to give your life for the other person. That's what Biblically, that's what you're doing. I'm entering into a a contract, a covenant, and I'm going to give myself up for the other. Then, if you decide to have children, that's taking that step even further. We, as a couple, are now going to give our lives for our children. We are giving, increasingly, we are giving up individual individual rights and taking on more and more responsibility. The fact is, life is full of trade-offs. It is not possible to have it all. We in America think it is, but it is not possible to have it all. If you decide to get married, you are going to give up something that you will never get back. If you decide to have kids, you are going to give up a lot of things that you will never get back. But these are the things that God has called us to, which means that these are the things of life. Life is not the individualism that America promises. Life is fulfilling what God has called us to, and that is what brings beauty and truth into our lives and shines the image of God. And we also aren't always prepped beforehand by parents or schools or churches, to know how to make the right choices for ourselves and our families. As Bronwyn Lee, a writer and mother of three in California, put it, this is, I just really think that this was great. I assumed I would have children and never gave any thought to who would take care of them. It was, I'll have children, as if that were like, oh, I'll own a car. I can drive it and enjoy it when I need it, and when I don't, I'm going to park it in the garage. Is I mean, we have to stop and think. Is that how we think about kids? It's one more thing to accumulate in our culture of accumulation in America? You can't park a kid in the garage. And so we need to be thoughtful. What is it going to take to raise this child... to fulfill the responsibilities that God has called me to as a parent. Husbands and wives should spend a great deal of time early on in their marriage and even before they get married thinking, praying, discussing, and planning on each other's perspectives and expectations for marriage, children, and work, how they are going to support and encourage each other in their unique gifts and callings, how and when they are going to engage bearing and raising children, how they are going to earn, save, spend, and invest in their own callings and those of their children. Sixth point. There are seven, but the seventh is really a fast one. The work of strengthening husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, and children. And this is where our culture has completely missed it is the work of an intergenerational community where the older generations provide example, training, and financial support for the building up of the younger generations. We really don't have this. We really don't have this. Many of the challenges we face today are the consequences of the home no longer being the center of economic activity and of the fragmentation of the family. Individuals and young families are increasingly starting off without the benefit of generational investment that was present in previous generations. For example, land, home, business, people, financial resources, all kinds of things that that children would inherit or receive from their parents and grandparents. Every household seems to be starting off fresh and brand new. The time when families are just starting out is also the time when it seems that the most resources are needed and the time that is most beneficial for bearing and raising children. Since the world is increasingly distanced from the home and the home is increasingly distanced excuse me, increasingly fragmented in terms of intergenerational family life, men and women who are spouses and parents will increasingly blur the lines between the spheres of home and work as women become increasingly engaged in the world since they're called also to the world. And women will become increasingly involved at home since they are also called to the home. Russ Duthat from the New York Times. He's a great uh, editorialist at the New York Times. is a Catholic, conservative Catholic believer. For Americans of every social class, the future of marriage will be more egalitarian with more shared burdens and blurrier divisions of labor, or it will not be at all. I tend to agree with him on that. Christians beyond the stages of childbearing and childrearing should be as serious about the younger generations as they were their own, investing first into their own children and grandchildren and then into the pressing needs of the church and the world around them. We can't have older generations abandoning the younger generations. Okay, Retirement is not, I'm going to buy the RV and drive around the country for 20 years or play golf for 20 years. I mean, You can do those things, but you still are called. This is why the older men and the older women are addressed here in this passage. They are called to take on... Responsibility for the younger generations to help them emerge as husbands and wives, as mothers and fathers, as responsible men and women in the kingdom of God. A young mother and father could continue to invest in education or careers, even partially... If fathers and mothers, aunts and uncles and grandparents made commitments to continue to strengthen the young family with a wide variety of resources, including child care, finances and counsel. One of the things you see when you go into a non-American, non-individualistic cultures is that there are a lot of people. I mean, the first time I went to, to Nigeria uh, to uh, a, f- a family that we were f- friends with here in the States, they had moved back to Nigeria, went over there to visit for a couple of weeks to do some some work, um, that household had a lot of people in and around it, cousins and aunts and uncles and, and a lot of people involved in the care of the kids. And in our, our culture with our fragmented nuclear family model, it just it just doesn't, doesn't work. And so we have to take intentional efforts as the older generations to, to support and strengthen the younger generations that are moving the government and the workplace and this is what we see in our culture the government and the workplace will increasingly fill in the gaps and meet the needs that were formerly met by extended networks of family friends and neighbors since these networks are no longer structural elements of our culture the culture will increasingly structure these things into those spheres where it does where it does have power Th- these needs are always present child care is always present okay Um, advancing career and education and development. Those needs are always present. Our culture is going to figure out how to solve that problem, and it's going to do it through government, and it's going to do it through the workplace. The kingdom of God also has an ethic behind these things. And the last point. Great parenting does not ensure that your children will turn out well. You can be the greatest parents in the world, but you still are raising a child who has his or her own mind, and will make his or her own decisions. You can be a terrible parent, and your children may turn out great. Who knows? All right? Who knows? And we don't parent with the hope in the outcome of our kids. We parent with our hope in Jesus Christ, and out of faithfulness to him, and pray for our kids, and work hard, <laughs> and fail a lot, all right? The best parents are going to fail a lot. And the best parents are going to think that they're terrible parents, all right? There are ways where I have been a terrible parent, all right? Um, and, but you, you, you hold tight to the gospel. You keep praying. You keep working. You keep repenting. And you keep trying to fulfill what God has called us to. So now for reality. Slide show's over. Oh, there's Lawrence's questions. Many of these things are structural and generational, which means our sins and weaknesses, failures, and shortcomings will not be easily remedied. Family structure, uh, genetics, the models that we grew up with as children the lack of models in the generations ahead of you guys these things take time and maybe generations to start seeing where where the biblical image is really hold what is really holding up what if we were too narrowly focused on our callings to spouse and parent and missed out on developing our gifts and talents beyond those things? What if we only focused on our gifts and talents needed for a career, and not in the skills needed for being a spouse or a parent? What if we didn't have these convictions when we got married and had kids, and have committed ourselves to a lifestyle and financial commitments that require our two incomes, leaving no capacity for child rearing? What if we didn't take seriously our potential role as a spouse and parent who would have to support a family, and squandered our formative years? What if we had kids but didn't make the sacrifice to raise or parent them? What if we got married and have kids but do not feel fulfilled and are constantly complaining or grumbling about the work and the hardship that kids bring? What if we didn't have these convictions when we were married and only one of the partners is interested in believing in them and fulfilling them? What if we put our careers before our marriage or our kids and the effects are increasingly obvious? What if we neglected to work and save in such a way that provided some help for the generations after us? What if we worked really hard to follow Christ in these things to our greatest ability and our kids still turned out terrible? I mean, you can just go down the line in all of the ways that, the, that either our sins or the sins of others are our own weaknesses. Um, Show, and so and, and because these things are systemic and and so challenging and long term, it is easy to get really hopeless. Like ah, I'm in a situation, you know, you can think that you're in a place that's just going to take years to overcome, especially if you have a partner that doesn't agree with you doesn't see the same things that you see or have the convictions that you hold or maybe doesn't even hold to the faith. And how are you going to be a spouse and a parent in a context like that? It's extremely challenging. And so I, I would just I want to broadly just continue to express the gospel into these situations. I'm going to hit a few specifics because I think Titus is hitting a few specifics. Um, but... Christ, the reason why Paul wrote the book of Titus to all of these churches is not because um, they were in a place where they were embodying these things. These words are not written to people that are doing them. These words are written to people who are not doing them. And all of us, to some degree, have to step back and acknowledge, I'm not doing them. I'm not doing them. I'm not fulfilling this calling. I'm not a dignified older man. Or I'm not a dignified older woman. Or I'm not a a loving and caring younger woman. Or I'm not a sensible young man. All All of us, to some degree, have to look at these passages and say, you know what, I, I fail at least in a few things. And that is why Paul concludes the passage in Titus 2 with the gospel. These things are not expectations that Christ wants us to be at immediately. He wants us to see these things as, as, as aspirations to, to, to strive for. All right, Because they are what it means to be godly and what it means to image Christ. And to image beauty into the world. So we aspire to them knowing that we are not there and knowing that we are never going to be perfect. But we have hope to aspire to them because, as Paul concludes in Titus 2, Christ has come to redeem us from these things. Christ has come to give us the ability, first of all, the longing, the desire, and second of all, the power in the regeneration that Christ brings through the Holy Spirit inside of us. And so we are constantly striving for that godliness that he's calling us to. We have a hope, and this is what is so beautiful we know that when Christ returns, we will be like him, and the fight will be over. All right? That's what Titus calls the blessed hope, the return of Jesus. When, when, we, when we, I love the way John puts it, when we see him, we will be like him. We will be perfected in all things. But until then, there is a perfecting work going on with our hope in the ultimate destination and a trust in God's continued work now. There seem to be three things that that Titus is really addressing. The first one, men and women, laziness, gluttony, debauchery, and substance abuse. Those seem to be problems on Crete, and they are problems in our own culture, and they seem to be. They're they're ways of dealing with hardship. I don't want to work because work's hard. I don't want to raise kids because raising kids is hard. Even though I made the choice to have children, I don't want to raise them. Or the, the, the bitterness of life is too painful for me to endure Sober. Yep, life is hard, and life is bitter, and yes, raising children is hard work, and it is the most painful thing that we will ever go through. If we lose sight of the gospel that, that life is promised, and this is why faith is such a critical thing, if we lose sight that the gospel promises life, even in the midst of hardship, even in the midst of suffering, then we won't have the power or the strength to put off the laziness or the substance abuse or the sexual immorality because we'll still be believing that those things are life because they feel good. Even for a moment, we just want some brief, temporary relief of pain. And that's oftentimes what those things do. But the promise of Christ is that it is a growing presence of joy even in the midst of suffering. Second thing I think he's addressing is that he's addressing women that forsake their responsibilities as wives and mothers. He's addressing that. Again, from bitterness, the great challenge of the work that is involved, and I think a concern for making a name for themselves, because the day-in, day-out tasks of taking care of a man and taking care of children is oftentimes a thankless job. And, and in that thanklessness and in the difficulty, um, there's the temptation to just not do them. And Titus is saying, no. The way of life is fulfilling your responsibility as a wife and mother to put your hope in, in, in the name that Jesus Christ gives you, to put your hope in the power and in the energy that Jesus Christ will give you through his spirit that indwells you. He's not leaving you without resources. If you don't believe it, though, you can't can't use them. So, again, there's that faith element. Do I truly believe that Christ is going to bring me life in the midst of this family life that seems to be so difficult and hard and that I want to leave and reject? And, again, men that forsake their responsibilities as husbands and fathers. The, The challenge to young men, just be sensible. And we see young men not willing to bear the burden of responsibility. And, and young men, and you know, I, I was thinking about this, um, young men are just as emotional as young women. The emotion shows itself in different ways, okay? Rage and anger is emotion. Impulsivity is sensual decision-making, And we as a culture, we are training our young men to just follow whatever impulses they have because they are irresponsible and they just really shouldn't be expected to have any sort of responsibility. And they need to be challenged to take responsibility. And laziness is a huge pull to young men. Because how can working hard at something and pain involved in something be any source of life? Well, again, that's where we, we have to believe the gospel. We have to believe the gospel that, that life and joy and happiness will be found only in Christ in a long-term and substantive way through the power of the Holy Spirit that works at us. But if we don't believe in the fundamental gospel that Christ grow, going through death and coming out in, in resurrected life. That's the life that, promise, that Christ is promising us. We have to see that the suffering is temporary and that it leads to a greater joy. And so we can endure all the hardship of being a, a, a mother, a father, a husband, and a wife because it's a temporary hardship for the creation of joy that Christ will give us in the moment and then in the long term. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for this... Thank you for this word. Thank you for Titus's clarity. Thank you for all of Scripture and God. Thank you for um, just the opportunity to discuss these things in the context of a church community. I just pray, God, that you'd continue to, to move us all forward uh, in these things in Christ's name. Amen.